Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the place where we can gently learn more about both ourselves and the world around us. Today, I'm meeting three incredible climate change activists collectively known as Earthrise. Doing your bit means different things to different people. Activism means different things to different people. And I think for a long time in the climate movement, there's been this strive for perfectionism, uh, which is, you know, excludes people. I think that's something we're really fighting against is we need a, a hugely inclusive movement that says, just do what you can. YouTuber twins Jack and Finn Harries have joined forces with filmmaker Alice A.D. to create a new digital platform and creative studio called Earthrise. Together, they use storytelling to communicate the climate crisis. They've been working hard creating The Breakdown, a five-part film series exploring how we got here and where we're headed. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's the show. Jack, Finn, Alice, how are you? We're very good. We're Thanks, yeah. Very, well. very happy to be here. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us, Ben. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. You are a powerful trio, a powerful trio of filmmakers, activists and storytellers. And you're doing some seriously important work. And we're going to talk about all the brilliant things that you're doing and all of the new projects you've launched recently, which are phenomenal in a moment. But first, I just want to rewind and go back to the start just for anybody who isn't familiar with your backstory so the brothers let's start with you the brothers so you guys you you built up a huge momentum on youtube and were you know highly successful in that area and then decided to have a bit of a break and and step back what what was the catalyst for that why did you need that time out Oh my god, great question. Who kicks it off? <laughs> Let's dive in. Shall I start? Why don't you t- start tell the beginning of the story? So, long story short, Fern, yeah, we started a YouTube channel when we were 18 years old. This was back in 2011. YouTube was a totally different space back then. There was no such thing as like a YouTuber, you know, no one made money on the platform. It was, it was a new and exciting place. And for us, we were 18, fresh out of school. There was nothing more exciting than just making videos from our bedroom and being able to broadcast them with the world. And we did that for almost five years, four or five years. Yeah. And we both we both quit university on the same day, much our parents dismay and announced we were going to make YouTube videos for a living. <laughs> and we registered a small company and got a little office and, and did it full time. And honestly, I look back on those days and it was some of the sort of happiest and most fun memories I have of, of growing up. Um, but then there came a point where Finn decided to go to New York and decide to pursue a different path to become an architect, ultimately, which you're still in the training for. (laughs) It's a long road. But this was born, like, if we go back a second, and from my perspective, the channel that we created when we were 18 was really born out out of Jack's boredom and almost a sort of of naivety of just playing with these these creative tools, you know, a camera that he had in his bedroom and uploading it onto this website called YouTube, which we weren't really sure. No one really knew where this website was going. And so we went on that journey in real time of uploading and Jack started and I joined at some point Jack convinced me to be in an early video to talk about what it was like being twins and I was really reluctant it, to be honest I was I dragged him to in be front. honest the reason I said yes is I was terrified of speaking to a camera and I was so envious of Jack's confidence and charisma in being able to communicate I was like okay I might learn a thing or two and so I jumped in and right, we created this video and that video among others like had this sort of snowball effect you know we were twi- British twins and it was sort of some sort of niche that we had found on the website at the time and, and like Jack said we got on it in a moment where it was growing like we were lucky to be part of this sort of shift in media short form content um, but it grew really quickly and maybe we can dive into this more later but we're going to touch on it briefly now but like my experience of that was one of 
like pure elation in going through that experience and getting all this sort of like um, recognition for the work we were creating and getting, um, you know, attention for what we were doing. And the beginning of that is really exciting. And it's like everything we dreamed of as creative people. And then coming to that point, and I'm sure many people have experienced this, have gone through a similar experience, I'm sure you have in ways, where it becomes a little bit too much and it's going too fast and you lose control of what you've created. And it's like it's running you, you're not running it anymore. And so for me, and we talked about this a lot, it was like, how do you put on the brakes on something that just has a momentum of its own? And that's ultimately why I think I moved to New York. There was, that was a huge aspect of it. And then just to finish that, I think there was a huge sense of responsibility. We had built an audience and a platform and there came a moment where we both sat down and looked at each other and thought, what should we do with this platform? You know, we have a responsibility to be talking about things that we felt were important and to be trying to use this audience for good. And that felt like a very overwhelming thing at first. I think, you know, our background wasn't in doing socially led work, but we did grow up with a mum who was a, a, an environmental activist and she used to drag us to protests outside like the Heathrow Fifth Runway and Houses of Parliament. I always have one memory of her saying, you know, uh, boy, is mummy maybe arrested today, but don't worry, I'll be home in time for breakfast. <laughs> And so there was this sort of like, I guess, environmental activism bubbling within us. And um, to cut a long story short, we started to turn our storytelling towards climate and the environment um, as a sort of social issue that we were passionate about. And that sort of led us on the journey of the last four years, really, to where we are today. I love that. I've got a mum a bit like that as well. It's quite exciting, quite scary, but exciting. Um, okay, so we'll we'll pause your story there and we're going to jump over to Alice and we're going to kind of work through the integration of how all of this happens. So Alice, you went and studied film and documentary making at uni and then went out to help with the refugee crisis. And from what I've read, that was sort of like a, a, a short-term temporary thing that ended up being about four years. Is that right? <laughs> just just a short chapter of my life, fun. So I, um, as you say, I studied history and politics and then filmmaking. And, and my journey to climate was so different to the boys. Um, I was super interested in humanitarian issues, conflict. And when I left university, it was 2015. It was the height of the refugee crisis. And there was one incredibly powerful, poignant and devastating image of a young boy called Ilan Kurdi. And I'm sure many people will remember he was drowned up on Greek shores. And for me, this was an absolute wake up call to a crisis that was happening on our doorstep. Um, And I hooked up with some incredibly inspiring people who are volunteering in Calais. They run an extraordinary charity called Choose Love. And I began to work with Choose Love, documenting the refugee crisis across Europe and the Middle East. And I became so passionate about this issue. Um, And it all really happened by accident. But I started to document it through photography and film. But the big turning point for me was through that work, having never been passionate about climate change, never engaging with this issue, rubbish at recycling, not understanding anything about sustainability, I realized, wait, actually climate is this umbrella issue that is gonna exacerbate every social justice issue that we care about. So for me at the time, I was super passionate about forced migration. Well, climate is gonna cause the biggest mass migration in history. We could have up to 1 billion migrants by 2050. So this will be a seismic shift in global migration patterns. So everything that I'd seen over these four years, um, incredible families displaced from their homes, forced to leave, um, in this case, because of a, a, a war in Syria, but this will happen because of climate. And so if I cared about these people that I've met, how could I not care about climate change? And I, at some point in 2016, I met Jack in Calais in the refugee camp, this extraordinary person who shared my passion for filmmaking. And a few months later, and we won't bore you with the romantic details, but we started Finn <laughs> will literally kill us if we go down this story. <laughs> but um, I met this person who, as I said, shared my passions. And Jack and I started to work together and document refugee stories and ultimately travel to climate front lines to document the human stories of those living already today on the climate front line. So not just engaging with climate as this nature problem, this wildlife problem, but actually a humanitarian issue. 
Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good summary. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good summary. I, 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 that's how our paths crossed. And that's how ooh. there's this very complex mix of a girlfriend and twins working together. I know, I love it. But it's so, as I said at the start, you are a powerful trio and you're doing some incredible things and you're using everything that you've learned and, and witnessed over the last five or so years uh, to create some really special things. And like you just said there, Alice, you know, we still compartmentalise all these problems. Like there's this problem here, there's this crisis here, there's that one over there, but they're, they're all integrated. They are all part of the same thing. And one of the biggest problems we have is how we are so disconnected from our own planet. And what I find so interesting with, with what you're doing and how you're, and you've just touched on this, Alice, how you're trying to reframe climate change from, you know, we so often hear, we've got to save the planet. And it's like, you know, like you say in your documentary series that you just released, oh, no, the planet's going to be A-OK without us. It's actually going to thrive without us humans. We're the ones now causing all these problems. What we need to do is see, like, the stark reality of how this is a a problem for us and also the biodiversity on the planet, the, you know, all the beautiful nature and creatures we share the planet with. And this is an urgent problem, but we're not acting urgently. And that makes me feel squeamish. I mean, we feel the exact same thing. And I think, you know, the journey we've been on over the last few years has been an interesting one. We all sort of came to the understanding of the severity of the climate crisis. There was a while where we'd just send each other articles, watch documentaries, sit together late at night and just be like, this is, you know, so overwhelming. What do we do about this? And at first, I think our answer was activism. We were a big part of Extinction Rebellion, which many people may have heard of. It was a group that started in the UK and they took to the streets to use nonviolent direct action. I ended up gluing myself to a building and being arrested. And I think at the time, I look back, probably wasn't the best use of my time, but I really didn't know what to do. I felt angry, I felt scared and I felt overwhelmed. And we did that for a year or two, and it was an interesting process. I think we learned a lot. But ultimately, we had to ask ourselves, well, what's our skill? Like, what can we lend to this movement? And we're communicators. We're designers and filmmakers, writers, storytellers. And we decided that that was how we could best use our time. And I think we all, what we all agree on is that climate change is a storytelling issue. You know, we know what the problems are. Like, scientists have been shouting from the rooftops for literally 30 or 40 years. I mean, way before I was born. And we have many of the solutions as well. But what we need to do is build a mass movement to put those solutions in place. And for us, that is about storytelling. That's about galvanizing people online um, and, and telling that story in, in many different ways, be it through design, be it through podcast, be it through filmmaking or talking. And that is the aim of Earthrise, I think. And that was where we came together and said, let's build a brand that can tell that story with the hope of galvanising more people. Whether or not it will, I don't know. Well, it already is. It already is, you know, and you've got your, your first sort of venture, Earthrise Studios, up and running and you've released episode one at this point, at the, the time of the recording of your series Breakdown. And from what I understand, this is an opportunity for you to talk about climate change in a really simple way. Because although we hear... The words climate and change put together relentlessly in you know everyday conversation. Often we don't know what it means, and there's lots of myths flying about and and uncertainty. So so this series is just telling us what it is and getting back to basics, right? Yeah, it's exactly that. I, I think we all found learning about climate change a very overwhelming and intimidating process. Um, I definitely found it very challenging. I won't speak for you guys, but it is because it's scientific numbers. It's things happening in faraway places. You feel guilty and responsible. You feel like a hypocrite. You feel like you don't know enough. And I think importantly, as you said, it's hard to understand the context of how we got here. And when you don't have the context of something, you feel paralyzed. It feels overwhelming and you shut down. And so the idea we all came up with for the breakdown was to provide that context. How do we get here? Where are we headed? And what can we do about it? With the belief that if you gave people that information, they would be able to act in a better position to act. Mm. I, I think I love this uh, phrase, knowledge is power. And I think mm. as Jack has touched on, what we really want to fight against is the, the feeling that so many people I'm sure can relate and we felt it so deeply is just this sense of paralysis. You feel powerless in the face of it. It's too big. It's too complex. You don't understand how to take action. Um, Jack mentioned something and I, I do think it's so important, this element of hypocrisy. And I think that's what we tried to do with Earthrise and with this series. It was We're trying to make a really accessible series for a, you know, a group that we call the Climate Curious. So Jack talked about Extinction Rebellion, who of course so many people have heard of. Not everyone has the time or privilege to go out onto the streets. Some of their tactics, although they've done such an extraordinary 
job at sounding the alarm and um, I think that was so needed at the time. I think now we need a, a blueprint for where we're going. We need to look to the future and that's why we're kind of using storytelling like the breakdown but we're, we're, we want to do so much more about using creativity, harnessing storytelling to paint a vision of the world that we want to go to. I think it has been so clear to all of us, particularly this year, that we live in broken systems. I think the point is people don't know or understand what the alternative might be. And that is so paralyzing. So how can we talk about a different version of the future that everyone knows that we need? We need a, a future that is fairer, greener, better. And we're so passionate about using creativity, but also hope and optimism. And that's something that has been so missing from the climate movement. We have to harness hope, optimism and imagination to paint a, a vision of a better world, visualize it, and then ultimately move towards it. And that is literally what drives us every single day. Yeah, we have to have hope. Otherwise, we like that paralysis will just be will just stay stagnant because we're all too scared. And I think it's really interesting to sort of unpick the feelings we have around the insurmountable problem that we face because often you know it is just oh my god I'm stuck to the spot I don't know what to do I, I don't know if I'm making the right decisions and like you rightly said guilt comes into it and shame and and then there's finger pointing and hypocrisy being thrown about etc and I guess you know I, I spoke to Nikki Reed about this recently who's an actress in the states who's creating lots of really amazing sustainable companies that are it's not there's no greenwashing in sight it's proper you know grassroots sustainable stuff and she's doing some really clever things with tech companies to recycle and and whatnot and we talked about this element of of sort of shame and guilt a lot because sometimes people think right if the solutions or the steps aren't perfect, I'm not going to bother. Like, what's the point? And I think part of it has to be an incremental change and us doing our bit because that bit's going to be better than nothing. So rather than for us to look for absolute perfection, we are living the ultimate sustainable individual green life. We have to make slow changes because the change is so huge, the change that's needed and in such a short amount of time. We can't expect everybody overnight to just change their whole lives. And, and like you said, Alice, people have got shit going on there. You know, they're going through their own personal traumas or they're busy or whatever. And it might not seem like the most, you know, important thing in their lives, although it is to all of us fundamentally. And getting rid of that guilt and shame and knowing that we can make small incremental changes, it might not be enough, but it's a bloody good start. hundred percent. I mean, progress, not perfection is a mantra yes. that we come back to a lot. And I think a big part of our aim at Earthrise is making that shift from just looking at individual action to systemic action. You know, we talk a lot, we hear a lot about the individual changes we all need to make in our lives. And that can be very overwhelming and intimidating because it's like, you need to use a bamboo toothbrush. You need to stop driving your car. But we all live within, as Alice said, this broken system we're limited by the system that surrounds us and so what we need to do is demand systems change and i understand that in itself can seem even more overwhelming well, i'm just one individual how do we change a system but to me that's where being part of a collective comes into the picture you know that's where movements like the youth strikes like the sunrise movement in the united states like extinction rebellion when people come together and we look back throughout history that's how we create change on a yeah. systemic level and i think one of the th actually just talking about the breakdown one of the things i found most fascinating researching that show uh, in our second episode we talk about the denial and misinformation of fossil fuel companies and how they spent years they had all this information 30 years ago and they spent years just denying it and confusing the public and one of the most fascinating things i found out was that the idea of the carbon footprint which is you know how we all measure each of our own individual impact carbon impacts was created by bp the fossil fuel company it was a marketing strategy created by them in the 2000s and it was a way of saying don't blame us you need to control your own carbon footprint mm. and when you start to unpick these things and understand it you realize how the finger has been turned on the individual and i think it's our job to turn it back onto the polluters which are the mega fossil fuel companies and corporations that have knowingly been polluting and confusing the public for for longer than we've been alive and just to yeah. add to that i would say um, having compassion and empathy, you know, Fern, you mentioned we all need to do our bit. And I think we ha there has to be a certain understanding that doing your bit means different things to different people. Activism means different things to different yeah. people. And I think for a long time in the climate movement, there's been this strive for perfectionism, uh, which is, you know, excludes people. I think that's something we're really fighting against is we need a, a hugely inclusive movement that says, 
just do what you can and it, it makes a yeah. difference. And and to quote a, a small environmentalist you may have heard of, no one is too small to make a difference. Greta Thunberg, that's one of my favorite quotes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know what? We had um, this amazing guy called David Katz on the podcast a while back. So if anyone's listening to this and wanting to, to continue this conversation, David Katz was so brilliant and he started up this a movement called the Plastic Bank because his sort of theory is, and I'm sure it's very accurate, is, you know, what we need to do first is eradicate poverty because that will then in turn create such huge systemic change with how the world works and all these broken systems work and it will help to eradicate all the different environmental issues that we're dealing with. So he gets lots of different communities who are under the poverty line to get involved in this amazing initiative where you go and collect ocean plastic or, or plastic that's in the environment and then you go to the plastic bank and, and then the money goes on your card and, and you've got yourself a credit system going on and, and then you have social plastic that's then in the market and it's it's an amazing setup and there are people doing brilliant things but but it's really interesting that you know I, I love this kind of pointing the finger back at the big guys because it is so massively needed and you know I'm I work with lots of different charities, but I'm also signed up online to lots of different initiatives. And I'm constantly getting in my inbox, sign this petition, sign this petition, which I feel like I've got to sign all of them because I want to be part of this thing. But it seems like we're constantly in battle with our government. And it's like, why are you guys not just doing the stuff that needs to be done? Like, I feel like I'm sure you do such frustration that all of this seems like a sort of battle against the policies that are in place and it's bizarre that there's sort of very little movement there it's you know how do we not feel completely hopeless in that situation where you know just constantly writing petitions still doesn't seem enough one of one of the words that we've become interested in recently is resilience and having done activism for a couple of years and having seen our mum as jack touched on earlier go through this process burnout is very real like as you said when you feel like you're fighting your own government that's an exhausting process when you're trying to convince people around you when you understand something that's deeply uh, uh, daunting and terrifying and people aren't speaking about it after a while that becomes too much and and burnout is somewhat inevitable and so for us what's really important and we try and advocate for this on earthrise and i know it's a big part of the work you do is looking after your well-being and your mental health you can't look after the external environment unless you first look after your internal environment and so i think that's critical here for any activist is to be able to uh feel that they can take the time off to look after themselves to step away that you can you don't have to be go 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 every single day and that actually makes you more successful in the change you're trying to implement it's so important and and i don't i don't think that conversation happens enough um in terms of putting it into context with activism because any activists out there on whatever level because you know anyone can be an activist if they feel they're making an impact on a subject that they're very passionate about especially in a collective like you've said whether it's to do with mental health or the environment or whatever other issues or rights of um, minorities that you might want to be fighting for it is draining and the frustration like the level of frustration because of course if you if you care deeply about something it's going to impact you on a cellular level you know you're taking on a huge burden of anger and frustration and passion and Finn it's really interesting that you just talked about that because I don't think I've I've heard enough of that that you know it's not a selfish thing to go bloody hell I need to just take a second to you know I've had this so often where I've just felt so frustrated about injustice and and things that I can see going on around me that I don't like and it batters me and I just sort of end up so beaten by it and and that's not what you want because you want to keep the drive and the momentum and the hope like you've talked about Alice you want to keep that in place so that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think that's our challenge constantly with our work. I, I experienced this really personally in 2018. I was reading as much as I could about the environment, wanting to try to work out what I could do, how we were going to communicate it. 
And I hit a point where I consumed one too many of these sort of very daunting scientific reports. And I assumed that once I sort of knew as much as I could, I would be really well informed and activated. But the result was totally the opposite. I just fell into this place of despair and became completely sort of like non-functional. I needed to step away to engage in activities like meditation or exercise, tools that I know work for me to reset my mental health. And just to completely step away from that work and reading the sort of climate news and and scientific reports to be able to re-engage. And when I did, I was able to do it in a way that was much more successful than than when I was sort of burdened by this sort of negative information. We're hearing a lot, um, you know, I'm sure it's something, a term that you've heard, but eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. And I think this is definitely a sort of rising trend, particularly amongst young people. And I think... It makes perfect sense. I think it is a rational response to the information that we have. Um, I think we have to be careful when we talk about it because, of course, for us, we have a lot of privilege. We're living in the UK. We're not necessarily on the climate front lines. And I think a lot of our anxiety can come from the idea of what's coming further down the line in the future. When, of course, for so many people across the world, particularly across the global south, it's it's an everyday reality. It's already a life or death reality. But as Finn said, I think... We have found in ourselves, in our own personal journeys, that acting out of a place of anger or fear or despair is draining and it's it's not productive. And that's why we found that, you know, I find hope in taking action. Some people say to me, how can you feel hopeful? How, How can you feel hopeful in the face of the crisis that we have and how critical it is? But... You have to hold on to hope and you have that has to be the point of departure for the action that you take every day because what else can you do? Well, it's so true. It's so we and we have to we have to feel hopeful otherwise we just won't we'll give up. We won't bother and you know there's lots of sort of stats and 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 lines floating about and and some that we can maybe talk about now like you, you know I, I, it might have even been in your series this gauge of time that we've got 9 years to half global emissions and you kind of want to know that that's realistic to even get anywhere near hope. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to bring in the Mary Hegelow quote right now. One of our favourite quotes that we say often at Earthrise, and this is an American writer, environmentalist called Mary Hegelow. She says, the thing about climate is you can either be overwhelmed by the complexity of the problems or fall in love with the creativity of the solutions. And I think for us, that like either side of the coin scenario is really interesting. Like on the one hand, we're sort of totally uh, stuck and with no idea of how to move forward. And on the other, we're like, as Alice said at the beginning of this, we're so passionate and inspired. And we've seen so many other people be the same way at the sheer scale of change that we know needs to happen. And this comes back to the storytelling problem, I think. We have spoken for decades about the idea of this being about sacrifice we're going to have to change our lives things are going to get less good we have to put the brakes on and and move backwards not at all this is a massive opportunity to do things better and do things differently and i think that's again where storytelling comes comes in and you know you mentioned the word disconnection i think we are absolutely disconnected from ourselves but also from nature we see ourselves as separate from nature when we we are nature itself and honestly if I'd heard if I thought I was going to say that sentence 10 years ago I'd say Alice what are you talking about you've become <laughs> such a hippie but it, it is it is so true we were ab- yeah. we are absolutely dependent on it and the thing is there's an opportunity here and I love um what Jack often says is that we are a generation or a population suffering with our mental health um and I think we all want purpose in our lives and in this movement, there is an opportunity to fix things, to cling on to a sense of purpose and make a better world. And if that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. Yeah, we have, I think we have a greater challenge. Well, we certainly have a greater, greater challenge than any generation before us. But we also have more tools than ever before yeah. to tackle it. You know, we have social media to organise and to educate one another and as a space for activism. And I think over the last year, year and a bit in particular, we've seen social media, particularly Instagram and TikTok and others, transform. It's almost like our generation's woken up and it's like, oh, this isn't just a space for like selfies. We can educate yeah. one another. We can use it for, for activism. And I think Earthrise was born out of that desire to harness the tools we have to sort of organise and come together. And honestly, that's what gives me hope. Like the youth movement is what gives me hope. I mean, we go back earlier you were talking about politics and how frustrating it is to feel our politicians aren't taking action and the thing that's been so uplifting is just to watch young people be like 
cool, we're taking this into our own hands. And they really have, literally just skipping school on a Friday and getting in the streets and making change. And, you know, over the last two years, the, our understanding of climate has changed, transformed radically. It's like the fire alarm has been sounded, you know, and as Alice said earlier, now we need to sort of point people towards the exits. We need an exit plan uh, or a plan of strategy. But that, that, that raising of the alarm has been sort of done by young people. And I think that gives me so much hope. I remember it being very helpful for me. I went to see a therapist a couple of years ago dealing with a really high level of sort of anxiety around some of the stuff I was reading. And he explained that it wasn't just okay that I wasn't feeling okay, but it was healthy because I was digesting the reality of what was unfolding. And I think that's really important for people. Yeah, I just want to pick up that for something I was going to say earlier, and I think it is interesting to talk about in the context of this issue. We often say that learning about climate change or the climate crisis can be akin to the five stages of grief, passing through the five stages of grief. And it's kind of interesting if you look at them play out. So the first one is anger, and we see that a lot around us in the streets, people taking to the streets, furious at the situation. Uh, The second one is denial. And we've seen that play out in the media over the last 30 years. It was only a few years ago that the BBC agreed to stop putting essentially a climate denier on every time a climate scientist came to speak, which is mind blowing if you think about it. The next stage of of grief is bargaining. And we see a lot of that, as you said earlier, nine years left. No, 10 years left. No, we've got 12 years left. It won't be that bad. It won't be that bad. Surely Mm. we can push it a bit further. Um, The fourth one is depression. And that's what we've been talking about, where we've all found ourselves in that place of depression and feeling paralysed. And the fifth stage of grief is acceptance. And that's not to say accepting this is all going to be terrible and it's, you know, just standing back. It's accepting the situation we're in. And I think it's from that place that we can act. And we always say that action is the antidote to anxiety. Mm. And so I think we use that anxiety we feel, that fear, and we try and turn it into action. And for me, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. That's That's what gives me purpose. And going back to what you said earlier, I think lots of people our age are looking for purpose. Mm. And so how exciting if we can align those two things together, harness a whole generation of people who are thinking, what's my purpose? and align it with taking action. And and another way we can harness hope is something you, again, you talk about in episode one of The Breakdown, and and that is remembering that this is an incredibly recent problem. Like, we, we, we have no concept of of true time because we're we we just we see like even a day is like oh my god how am I going to get to the end of the day and our lives feel like this eternal thing especially at your age you know I'm I think now because my parents are older I feel a bit more like oh my god life is going really quick but especially for like the younger generation it's like oh I've got forever and forever is such a long time and but then when you look at you know like you do in the breakdown you look at um you know, 4.5 billion years ago when when the Earth pops out and then it's like, oh, right, let's have a look at the fluctuation of the climate over the the billions of years that Earth's been here. And then, oh, right at the end, in the last 150 years, we discover fossil fuels and we start ruining the planet. That is the tiniest speck of time. I mean, we've done an incredible amount of damage in that tiny speck of time. But as a species of, of humans, we have lived just fine without all of that destruction for millions of years. So, so what? I mean, again, it, it's a it's a huge question to ask. But but how do we start to look at reversing that or, or making those creative changes that you're talking about? I think if I could just jump in, I think the reason that it's I mean, I don't know whether listening to that in 150 years, we have dramatically impacted uh, the geological state of our planet. I don't know whether to sort of hang my, my head and cry, but actually I, I, choose, I choose to find it empowering because mm. there is nothing inevitable about the situation mm. that we're in. And therefore, if you understand that we got ourselves into this crisis, we, you can understand how we can get ourselves out of it. We are coming to the end of a historical period, the fossil fuel era. There will be other eras beyond this. And when you start to think about it in historical terms like that, um, I think that is exciting. And that comes back to the thing about we need to build a better world. We need to build the next era, the next civilization. And that's really exciting. Yeah, you, I think you really hope that, you know, like people go now, oh my God, mum, did you used to smoke like in the house or you used to smoke in the car with the windows up? What the fuck? And hopefully we'll look back and go, oh my God, we used to use fossil fuels. What the fuck? Like, let's hope it's that. Mum, you used to like not wear a seatbelt in the car. Okay, whatever. Like, I really hope it's one of them. Absolutely. Really and that's how close the future is. It's our kids and our grandkids. We'll, yeah. We'll be looking back thinking, God, did you used to drive around in metal 
cars with like black smoke coming out how how backward how stupid what about harnessing <laughs> what about harnessing the energy of the sun this extraordinary energy source that we yes. are not taking advantage of at all i mean they will look back and think it is totally insane and i think smoking is is such a good metaphor but for that we just had quickly add to that and i know you want to make a point in episode two of the breakdown where we look at the fossil the role of fossil fuel companies we explore how it was the exact same advertising companies that yeah. made the tobacco adverts that went on to then work for the fossil fuel companies so it's the same narrative we've been spun that same narrative of like oh smoking's fine for you you know keep buying cigarettes it's the same as fossil fuels are great let's keep digging them out of the ground you know and i think it's really important to understand that we've been driven that narrative it isn't you know the truth it's something that we've been spun and in that way we can get out of it what were you going to say i was just going to make the point because we touched on earlier that the planet would be fine without us which is really important to realize but also dangerous in the sense that people can start to feel that humans are this sort of um just bound to have a negative impact on the earth and that can be again very depressing and overwhelming but if, if we look back and you can look at for example indigenous cultures in south america indigenous cultures in australia around the world over history we have learned to come together as communities and over hundreds if not thousands of years we've found a symbiosis with our natural environment where we're not just sustaining we're and this is a term i love regenerative we're improving the environment around us we're giving back to it and we're in this sort of reciprocal relationship and so for me that's really exciting because it's not projecting some utopian future that doesn't exist it's and and particularly in the global west we need to do this it's being a little bit humble looking at our recent history and going "Mm, maybe we didn't quite get it right maybe we don't fully understand things here and looking to other cultures that have perhaps have been marginalized ignored um, and I find a lot of ins- inspiration in that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've touched on this a little bit in a new book that I'm writing, looking at different cultures around the world who have an everyday, all day, everyday relationship with the ground around them. And that, to, you know, again, the Western world is like, what? What are you talking about? Like, we're just on our phones or laptops or whatever. But, you know, I, I spoke to one lady who'd been living with Mexican elders and they wouldn't dare leave the home without an offering for the land or the sea if they were about to go for a swim. And it's an everyday conversation with the the land around them and the plants and the trees. And and we're just like cutting down, oh, I don't like that tree, get rid of that. You know, we're just walking on into the sea or whatever without any communication with it. And, and I think that's really exciting and beautiful to look at, oh, wait, I'm not communicating with this huge thing that's in my life all day every day and and especially in cities it's that bit harder because there's less real ground to walk on there's less trees there's less nature that you can imbibe but there's always an opportunity to do it and to create that sort of ritual or just like a really nice conversation into your day to start experimenting with that and I think that's something we all became really aware of particularly this year how much do we enjoy our daily walks into nature I saw autumn for the first time it felt like in London I properly saw autumn happen and and I I think I just neglected it in in years before you know you're so busy with your life you're so disconnected Um, and I think Finn it's such an important point there are different value systems do exist and I think now it's time to really really step back and listen and to question ourselves really question Mm. ourselves what does intelligence mean what does development and progress mean Mm. if we are destroying the very home in which we've built these you know, penthouses, mega cities, shopping centres. Um, it, it's time to really ask ourselves questions, hold up a mirror and say, can we do things better? And will we be happier in the process? I think so. I think the change, as you touched on at the beginning, Fern, comes from internally a psychological and cultural shift. There's this word that um, that I learned a couple of years ago, and, and we don't use it in, con- in like contemporary culture, but I think we need to bring it back. It's eudaimonia. And this word comes you from... You love your big words. This word... <laughs> I'm going to break it down what for you. What does it mean? Okay, so eudaimonia. It's essentially about happiness. And it's, it's an ancient Greek word that was used by Aristotle. And it's often misinterpreted as happiness. But if you break it down, you means well or good in ancient Greek. And daimon is spirit. And Aristotle stated in his writings, this is like, you know, the sort of godfather of Western philosophy, one of the greatest philosophers, like 350 BC, that the highest goal of humans should be eudaimonia, good spirit. And so if we, we've sort of lost that, like, or flourishing, human flourishing, how do we cultivate an environment where we focus on the spirit 
of humans, not happiness as we have it today. I think we've got a little bit confused on on what constitutes happiness. And <laughs> happiness is this sort of fleeting emotion that comes and then it goes. Uh, but flourishing, eudaimonia, good spirit, these are sort of like a, a perennial state that we can inhabit if we set up the right cultural environment. And that's something I think we need to bring back. Like I wasn't, I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I was never educated on or given the opportunity to think about spirit and how to build uh, a, a life or inhabit a space that cultivated a healthy spirit. I learned about happiness and I learned about ideas of success and experienced the sort of um, the ups and downs of that when Jack and I had this, this successful YouTube channel and money and fame and all that sort of thing. But I think we sort of need a shift in definition of, of yeah, how we define happiness and fulfillment. And that in yeah. turn, although it seems abstract, that in turn will shape the way we treat the environment and people around us. I mean, fundamentally, it is a cultural and psychological problem because at the moment our goalposts for happiness are get stuff, uh, reach the next level of something, get the perfect partner, tick all the boxes that society has sort of laid out for us. And, and we feel like if we don't do that, then we can't have that feeling. And of course we can, like you've just said, Finn, it's a it's a it's an internal thing and it's about connection and you know it it might sound abstract but it's absolutely not when you break it down if we place our focus now on having a dialogue with nature and getting as much joy from that as we might a new pair of shoes then we've got a better chance of feeling happy every day because we can go and get that wherever we are easily as long as we're able to you know tick the basics like having food and and shelter in whatever conditions you live in the rest should be able to be cultivated from what's around us but we've been i'm imagining sort of brainwashed on a level that this is what happiness now means it means getting stuff being powerful having money whatever these things that we're told in society and it's it's a cultural and psychological problem that's that's really you know since the industrial revolution been the big problem here I'll tell you what a good case study is. Jack and I had this amazing opportunity in 2018 to go to Bhutan, which is this tiny little uh, Buddhist kingdom in the Himalayas. It's sort of sandwiched between India and China. And they are infamous for the fact that they measure the success of their country by gross national happiness rather than gross domestic product. And we had the opportunity to go there and we were making a film for WWF. But this idea is a systemic shift. They're, they are one of the smallest countries in the world. Um, and they're saying we reject the notion that we should value our you know, success on our progress and development on our sort of economic export. Uh, but instead, we're going to look to our citizens and, and, and ask, how are they fulfilled? And it's produced all sorts of interesting results. For example, 60% of the country is mandated in the constitution to be covered by forest cover all, at all times. And as a result, they're carbon negative. They offset more carbon emissions than they produce. Wow. And so again, there's this really interesting link between looking after our inner happiness, our spirit, and the impact that has on the environment around us. And, you know, we've got to really watch that when you know in the western world and certainly if we live in cities because not only is nature less readily available but also there's always the middleman there's the middleman who's creating this disconnect of you know we're not going out and foraging our own food i mean some people might have vegetable patches allotments brilliant i'm i need to do that one day it's it's uh, it's on the list we're so used to the middleman that we have no thought even like where have these strawberries come from or where did, how how was that made like we've just become it's so normalized that you wouldn't even think you're just consuming and we've got a lot of work to do in terms of how we we think about these structures that we live in i guess but I feel like that's what our generation are doing. They're asking those questions yeah. exactly as you say. Where do my clothes come from? Where does this plastic bag go when I finish using it? You know, where, what's the fuel that's powering this car, train, and plane? And you know, like we are that we grew up with all of that stuff just being normal. We're that we don't know anything other than the fossil fuel era. You know, and being able to get a strawberry wherever you are in the world. When you start to sort of pull down that thick veil that protects us from seeing the processes involved, a lot of questions come up, and I think that's where it becomes exciting, and that's where. I don't know, that's what motivates me to start to want to make change when you look behind everything that we take for granted. And that's where storytelling comes in, I think, in an interesting way, is, is, as you say, pulling back the screen that hides this process and telling the real story of what it takes to produce that end product, whether it's food or a piece of clothing, um, and that creates the perspective shift. Uh, you start to value it differently. And, that, and, that, and that's, I think, 
not just about climate. I mean, I'm super passionate about human stories and I think that's relevant to, you know, the fashion industry. Would we be more connected to that dress that we buy and wear it more than once on a Friday night if we understood and had contact with or knew the names of the hands that it passed through, the the true heroes of fashion who are the people who make the clothes, not necessarily the, the models who end up wearing the clothes. The same, of course, is true for food. Ask ourselves, where is this food coming from? Who has worked with their own hands to, to, to bring this food to my plate? Um, I think asking those questions, feeling more connected through storytelling is, is absolutely crucial. So for anybody who's who's listened to this and thought, you know what? This is really like, this is hitting me in the heart and I want to do more. I don't want to feel paralysed. I don't want to feel scared anymore. I want to feel hopeful. I want to make change. Are there easy things that you could tell? I mean, I know none of this is easy, but are there there things today that we can do, changes we can make in our everyday life that anybody listening to this can walk away and action today? One of the things that we are driving towards through Earthrise is a conference that's happening at the end of this year. It's the UN Conference of the Parties. It's the 26th time it's happened. It's essentially a global gathering of the world's top leaders coming together to work out what on earth they're going to do to tackle climate change. And this year it's happening in Glasgow. And in previous years, we haven't seen the progress we wanted. And I think a lot of the time this is happening behind closed doors. They don't have the pressure that is needed to encourage them to make the decisions that are, of course, very tough to make as any political leader. So we're, we're, we're encouraging people to get behind that um, conference and put the pressure on their political leaders, wherever they are in the world, to pay attention to some of the discussions that are happening. And we're going to be sharing it through Earthrise and to really make sure that we get the results that are needed to hit these very ambitious targets like halving carbon emissions by within nine years. But that's 100% it. That is that is where these decisions are made. Like that is, you know, at the end of this year at that conference, world leaders will discuss what needs to happen over the next nine years. And I think it's crazy to me that, you know, most of my friends have mentioned COP and they're like, well, what's COP? Like this is the most important conference ever that's ever happened. And it sounds so grand to say, but it's literally the future of billions of people on earth are being decided at this conference that's happening later this year in Glasgow. So it's so fundamentally crucial. And we just we need to make it famous. We need to make the people who are attending famous to make sure that all eyes are on the decisions they're making, um, because the future of humanity literally relies on it. I love, you know, Fatima Ibrahim, who's an amazing woman, who's the co-founder, co-executive founder of the Green New Deal UK. If anyone just has a moment, just Google her and have a look at some of her thoughts and her, her, her talk. She's our age, but ridiculously intelligent and I feel like could be the next prime minister of the UK. We had the chance to interview her for our final episode of The Breakdown, which is all about solutions and what you can do. And she says this beautiful thing, which is that anyone and everyone can be part of this movement. In fact, we need everyone to be part of this movement. If we're going to do this, if we're going to succeed in you know, tackling the worst effects of climate change, it needs every single one of us. And everyone has a different role to play. As Alice was saying earlier, you know, it could be being a scientist and like doing the data. It could be being a storyteller. It could be just being a gardener and doing like a community garden. It could be going door to door and like working with local communities. It could be being a doctor and looking after people. Like we've seen frontline workers in the last year every single person has a role and so what I always say to people is look to your own life what 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 is possible within your own life you don't have to be out in the streets you know risking arrest or like shouting from the top of your voice it could be something much smaller just having a difficult conversation with a friend activism can look like so many different things and I think we have to just look to our own lives and ask what can I lend however big or however small it's going to need every single one of us Um, In terms of tangible steps, obviously there is a number of individual actions everyone can take. Things like adopting a plant-based diet massively reduces your carbon footprint. Obviously flying less, obviously buying less things, trying to be uh, by local, all of these things help. But my one point that I always want to push is let's go beyond that and let's try and create systemic change. And that starts by coming together as a movement. When people come together as a group, they can achieve incredible things. We've done it in the past. As we said earlier, we got ourselves into this situation in basically one human lifetime, in the lifetime of Sir David Attenborough. You know, I had a chance to interview him a year and a half ago, and it's fascinating. You know, when he started his career, this wasn't a problem. They just didn't know about the issue. And now he's towards the end of his career and he's you know, become a huge activist talking about it. But if we can get ourselves into this mess in one lifetime, I believe we can get ourselves out of it in less. In fact, we have to. He literally lives there. Wow. Yeah, really. Stop. 
Yeah, he lives on the next street. I can see into his house from my... Um, and this is going on for a terrible tangent of me just being a sort of celebrity voyeur, but I can, I can stand on my little decking and see into his house. And I've seen him walking up and down the road maybe only sort of two or three times in the last seven years, but I'm too scared to go and say hi because... He's Sir David Attenborough. You can't just be like, hey, how you doing? You don't know me. I can't. So I just sort of stand there and look at him and go, oh, my God, Sir David Attenborough. He's amazing. But I like it's a really good way of putting it that, you know, it is one human lifetime. So what is possible in, again, you know, 100 years? Let's choose hope over despair and being paralysed by it. I think um, that's the real thing that's come out of this conversation for me. We have to choose hope and we have to align our actions to that. And um, and thank goodness you guys are doing this brilliant work. You know, I I love what you're doing. I, I loved episode one of your of your documentary breakdown. I can't wait to see episode two there. For anyone that hasn't seen them, that they're, they're, they're short and concise, but they're packed with information and you come away getting it which is imperative so thank you thank you and and I'm I'm so excited to see what you do next as a collective and and you know the more people that join you on your mission the better so everyone go and follow Earthrise on Instagram and check out the documentary and just so much love and luck to you brilliant three oh thank, thank you so thank much you so for much. having us yeah you're lovely this has been a real real treat and a pleasure for us so Thanks, thank you man. so much You know what? It just gives me it gives me energy, it gives me power, it gives me hope knowing that people like Jack Finn and Alice who are so brilliant are taking control of our future. Also, I don't want to be reductive in any way because they these people are doing brilliant things, but my god did I feel rough around the edges looking at them on the screen. They're just so unbelievably gorgeous. Thank you for your time, you brilliant people, and for everything you're doing. Go and watch the Breakdown series on YouTube. It's excellent. Honestly, I cannot recommend it enough. It's so, so good. They also have a charity as well called Choose Earth, and I'll pop the link in the show notes if you want to support their work by donating. As always, I'll be back next week, so make sure you're following the podcast for free on your podcast app of choice. Until then, a massive thank you again to Jack, Finn and Alice, you brilliant people, a.k.a. Earthrise, and to the lovely producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and most importantly, you beautiful people for being part of all of this. I love you every single week. I'm sending you love and good vibes and I'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.